Okay, so good afternoon, everyone. And uh, my name is Afe Adogame, and uh, my task here is very simple, just to introduce the keynote speaker. Uh, be aware that there are two keynote uh, addresses uh, at this conference. So the first one is now, and then the second one is uh, tomorrow. Uh, both are power-packed, so I would encourage you not to miss any minute of them. All right, so um, very quickly, we would have uh, the keynote speaker uh, present, uh, and then we'll have a brief response by uh, Dr. Corey Williams, uh, who fortunately has just arrived from the Netherlands. Okay, so let me uh, say a few words. Uh, I have uh, like a dictionary here, if I have to talk about Jim. I first met, met Jim, uh, we met at a conference in Denmark in 2001 and uh, have remained friends and colleagues since then. Uh, Professor Jim Spickard uh, teaches at the University of Redlands in California. Uh, he currently offers courses on social theory, social research methods, the sociology of religion, homelessness, social inequality, and visual ethnography, among several others. He has led several travel courses to visit Aboriginal uh, communities in Australia and rural development projects in Nicaragua. Um, his current research focuses on three topics. The first is the role of religion in the contemporary world. The second is the causes of and solution for homelessness. And the third, is the growth of contemporary social inequality. He's the author of several books, and I will only mention uh, two and a half here. Uh, he's the author of the book, Alternative Sociologies of Religion Through Non-Western Eyes, published uh, by New York uh, University Press 2017. Uh, if you want to see a bit more about the book, uh, it's part of the exhibition at the library. Uh, in the same year, he authored a book, uh, Research Basics, Designed to Data Collection in Six, six Steps. So uh, Jim has the answer to any question about research methods. Uh, we, I was fortunate to co-edit a book with him uh, in 2010 uh, with the title Religion Crossing Boundaries, Transnational Religious and Social Dynamics in Africa and the New African Diaspora. So uh, several other books I don't have time to mention, but just to say that uh, he's uh, played very visible roles in a number of uh, professional uh, associations. Uh, uh, I will just mention one of them. Uh, he's the uh, past president of the Research Committee on the Sociology of Religion uh, in the International uh, Sociological Association. And, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure if I should say fortunately or fortunately, I stepped into his big shoes and uh, they are still uh, you know, oversized till now. Okay, so uh, I think I will just uh, stop there and uh, allow Jim to tell us what he knows best to do. So Jim. Tonight, uh, tonight this afternoon, I wanna thank you for inviting me to speak here about the importance of reflexive ethnography in the study of world Christianity. It's good to be coming home. I'm particularly pleased 
at giving this talk at a theological school, and for two reasons. One of them, it's because I hold my colleague and friend, Afa Ogama, in great esteem, and I'm pleased to celebrate his contribution to the social scientific study of religion at his home institution. The second reason is that my own PhD is from the Graduate Theological Union, a similar school. When I was a student there 35 years ago, ethnography as a method for the study of religion was simply not on that school's intellectual radar. The GTU taught me a tremendous amount about how theologians and religious studies scholars think but not so much about studying religions in the empirical world. Um, the problem, of course, is that I think like a sociologist. And so getting a job at a religious studies department, they sort of looked at me as a Martian. Um, fortunately, I ended up teaching sociology for a bunch of years and learned some by trial and error and by a lot of reading and by having, finding a lot of good mentors how to do this ethnography business. I have, however, slowly come to realize the connection between the theologians that I studied in school, such as H. Richard Niebuhr, and the habits of mind that I think are required of an ethnographic field worker. And that's one of the things I want to unpack for you today. I'll do this in three steps. Uh, and that sounds a whole lot more simple than it actually is. First, I want to talk a bit about ethnography, about what it is, how it works, and what it requires of the ethnographer. Then I shall show briefly what I think the ethnography uh, can, can contribute to the study of religion, particularly by highlighting religions as they are actually lived rather than as they, as they appear in textbooks or scriptures. Finally, I shall uh, speak about, whoops, sorry there. I shall speak about the importance of reflexivity. This is the process by which ethnographers recognize the way that our own intellectual and social locations shape what we can understand about the religious scenes we are investigating. We each have intellectual, social, and theological blinders. Reflexivity is the process of becoming aware of these blinders. We need that awareness because if we are not aware of where our blinders are, we simply cannot hear the people that we are supposedly studying. So, to begin, what is ethnography? The short version is that it's the study of social scenes. There's an old anthropological saying that ethnographers do not study villages, they study in villages. We ethnographers of religion do not study religions per se. We study people in religious places. We do so because we want to learn how religion works in their actual lives. And in doing so, we are frequently surprised at the degree to which religion in real life differs from what the theologians and textbooks tell us. In fact, I tell my students that if they are not absolutely flabbergasted by what they've learned in the field, then they are simply not paying attention. They have not gotten outside of their own heads far enough to see what is in front of them. Now, I'll give you an example that shows what I mean. My early career field work was in the San Francisco branch church of the Church of World Messianity, Sekai Kyo in Japanese. 
It involved me studying a group of people who practiced that religion at a key time in, the history of, in its history on the U.S. mainland. Yes, during that study, I learned that world messianity is one of 700 new religions founded in Japan in the 20th century. I learned that it's part of this so-called Omoto group of religions that emphasize spiritual healing. I learned that it is spread to the United States, Thailand, and Brazil, among other places. I learned something about their founder, Mokichi Okada, who's pictured in this, in the, in the, in the, on the slide. Their art museum, which is also pictured on the slide. Their flower arranging. Um, and about their eschatological cosmovision, which promises a coming age of fire to replace the last 2,000 years of the age of water uh, that we, through which we have been living. But above all, I learned about their chief spiritual practice, Jore. Church members regularly beam invisible light from the palms of their hands to clean the clouds off people's spiritual bodies. This is a form of prayer and action. You see Meshur Sama doing it in the, in the picture. Ministers do this at weekly services. Members do it at homes and in monthly meetings and at occasional public festivals. Anyone can visit the church to receive Jore, and people frequently do so. After all, we all have spiritual bodies, right? Why not clear them so that we can lead more holy lives? Now let me pause for a minute here. How many of you knew that you had a spiritual body? A few of you. How many knew that you had clouds on your spiritual body that get in the way, that keep God's light from shining on you? And that lack of God's light shining on you makes you sick, both physically and spiritually. I certainly didn't know that when I started my field work. I was given Joe Ray when I first walked into the church, and I only learned of its significance when the church leaders ran me through one of their orientation classes. Unfortunately, that class was in Japanese, and I spoke not a single word. But still, they said, no problem. They hung a little silk bag around my neck, showed me how to hold my hand, and then told me to channel Joe Ray. And I, you know, being a good boy, I complied. I have absolutely no idea what I was actually doing. But they said it was pretty effective. Over time, two years of field work, I learned to recognize the tingling sensation that happens when light is supposedly being channeled. And I was soon able to tell when a relatively powerful channeler was at work. When the head of the Japanese church channeled mass Joray to 1,000 people in an auditorium in Santa Barbara, it felt approximately like I'd been whacked on the head by a Nerf bat. And those of you who know what a Nerf bat is or have small children, this is not as bad as a board, but it's, you feel it. I have no idea what the head of the church was really doing, but it was not mass delusion. As an ethnographer, however, I didn't care what she was really doing. Ethnographers care about two things. First, we care about the conceptual worlds within which uh, people live, whether or not those words are real in any metaphysical sense. We bracket that question. What matters was that the people in the Japanese church thought and said what they were doing. They said they were cleaning the clouds off people's spiritual bodies. 
they embedded this activity, which they all recognized, in a very highly developed and very complex worldview. I learned the worldview through uh, what Renato Rosaldo, famous ethnographer, used to refer to as deep hanging out. You hang around the social scene long enough, you have conversations with people, some of them are formal interviews, most of them are not. Sometimes you're washing dishes with people, and you talk, and you figure out what world people are in. That is the ethnographer's first focus. We want to know what it's like to live in the world, um, in the universe that our inhabit informants inhabit. That's the first concern. The second concern is for hidden social patterns. These are the things that the locals do not consciously recognize about their communities, but that still shape their beliefs and behavior. Discovering these patterns involves a different kind of talk, a different kind of observation. I watched what people did. I saw whom interacted with whom. I teased out subtle dif differences between the group's various participants. In the case of the church, in this branch church, it turns out there were three separate communities of people interacting, each of which had a different understanding of Joe Ray. Each used Joe Ray differently, and each embedded it in a, its own particular worldview. Now, you can read the details of this, which I'm not going to go into in chapter 13 of the, the, the research design text, but the short version is that one of those uh, communities used Joe Ray for physical healing. Its members bragged that they had never needed to visit the doctors. They would, someone was sick, they would give them Joe Ray. They would, if you had a cold, they'd give you Joe Ray. The cold would get a little bit worse as the clouds dissolved and ran out your nose, and then you would be better. Um, this group was primarily made up of second generation Japanese Americans. They saw themselves as the mediators between East and West, and they emphasized the parts of the church teaching that valued this mediation. A second set of um, group, a uh, subset of the church, used Joe Ray for spiritual healing and did not care a whit for physical healing. This group was older, about half Anglo, half uh, Japanese American. It's many of its members had dabbled in theosophy and anthroposophy and other early 20th century spiritual traditions. They thought Joe Ray purified the spirit, and the point of life for them was to purify the spirit. The final group was made up of ex-hippies. This is San Francisco, after all. Folks who had burned out on the San Francisco's famous counterculture, but still hoped for social transformation. You could fa sometimes find these members channeling Joe Ray in hospitals, on buses, or standing across the street from City Hall and trying to raise the spiritual level of the city council and the public life in San Francisco. The other members of the church thought this was a little nuts. But they, each group respected the other. Each group saw them doing as the same thing. And the groups really didn't realize how different they were. What's the hidden pattern? That's it. Church members didn't realize they had three separate communities. They all interacted, and they knew they had minor differences, but they didn't know the extent of the differences themselves. 
Those differences were not apparent until the late part of my field work when the Japanese mother church sent two high-ranking ministers to San Francisco to, um, well, bring order to the colonies. About half the spiritualists and almost all of the ex-hippies left the church. Well, the Japanese-American physicalists nodded their heads at the new direct instructions and kept doing exactly what they pleased. If you go talk to people in the, ch in the, in the church and later on, they referred to those as the Wada Wada years, and they regarded them as an organizational disaster. And they were right. Now, the point is that ethnographers tease out such patterns. We seek the hidden patterns, and we also seek the conceptual worlds in which our, our informants live. More, put more generally, cultural worldviews and hidden social patterns are the two types of data for which ethnography is particularly suited. My research design text has this lovely chart in it with 14 different types of data. And each one of these types of data is peered, paired with one or more data gathering techniques. Ethnography is good for finding cultural knowledge and for finding its social patterns. It is not the best way to discover demographic data, nor identities, nor shallow opinions and attitudes, you know, far less uh, experiences as it presents itself to consciousness, which is what phenomenologists are after. Those have other techniques to gather data. The key to research is identifying the kind of data you're looking for and then choosing a data technique that's adept at finding it, and that's all you'll get about that book here but it's connected to the process of doing ethnography. Now, part two. Why is ethnography important for the study of religion? Simply put, and the people on the previous panels, particularly the first panel, expressed this extremely well. Ethnography gives us a detailed, nuanced picture of how religion is actually lived. This tells us much more about religions than do other investigative techniques, though those two have their place. I have seen highly skilled survey researchers tease out and correct myths about teenage religious, the religious lives of American teenagers, or show us the difference between the Catholic and a Protestant imagination among the American and European publics. Uh, these are projects carried out by Christian Smith and Andrew Greeley separately. But to learn what it looks like in practice, you have to go into the field. You need to go beyond elite views to see what people themselves are doing. So here's some examples of that, not from my work to begin with. Nancy Ammerman recently published a book entitled Sacred Stories, Spiritual Tribes. In it, she explored the everyday lived religions of several score professional class individuals in the Boston and Atlanta areas uh, through in-depth interviews, photo elicitations, and the collection of stories, plus some deep hanging out. She revealed the ways that her informants use religions to make sense of their lives. None of those sense-making ways are particularly orthodox. All of them are complicated. She showed how religion is, for these informants, not a matter of belief or even a matter of participation, but of learning how to craft a meaningful life, in their case, in a religious setting. Her work shows that religion remains central even to, even to seemingly secular Americans. 
Meredith McGuire show, similarly showed the importance of field work and understanding how religion works in ordinary life. To cite one of her examples, Latina women in her hometown of San Antonio have relatively low levels of church attendance and do not score particularly highly on me measures of religious knowledge or belief. Survey researchers would call them non-religious. But many have highly elaborate home altars where they place religious icons, memorials to their ancestors, and Im even images of famous Latinas like Frida Kahlo, who's in the center of the right-hand picture there. Um, and they pray or meditate or glance at or engage in their own practices in front of these altars, and they find those very meaningful. This would not show up in survey research. Um, other women sponsor pastores, which are popular Christmas miracle plays not controlled by the official Catholic Church. These are usually put on in response to a promesa, which is a deal that you make with a saint, for the saint will protect your family, you will put on a promesa, which involves a sponsoring of a festival in your neighborhood, you turn your front yard into a stage, you get all the people in the neighborhood to cook tamales, you feed everyone, and it's thanks to the saint, but it's also a popular connection to the divine. None of this shows up in survey research either, because that research types Latinas in San Antonio is only marginally religious, nor does it show up in interviews with the Catholic hierarchy or even with the church elites. They simply don't know this stuff is going on. You have to be hanging out in the neighborhoods and talking to ordinary people to figure it out. Um, ethnographic observation shows that San Antonio Latinas, at least, have rich, if unofficial, spiritual lives. Now, I do have an example of this from my own field work with the Los Angeles Catholic worker. And you can note the dates in the bottom corner. This is 13 years of field work. I do not recommend 13 years of field work, <laughs> particularly if you're a graduate student. Um, I wasn't there the whole time. I'm, I was you know, in and out over 13 years, but um, I'm not going to go into those details. This radical Catholic commune lives in a rundown mansion, and the mansion is pictured on the right. I don't have my own photograph of it, but that's, that's what we got. Um, it lives in a rundown mansion on the Los Angeles' each, each, side, each side, which they share with a number of formerly homeless people. They run a soup kitchen on Los Angeles' skid row. Uh, the soup kitchen is on the picture on the right here. Uh, they sponsor a dental clinic. And they spend a great deal of time protesting the repressive actions of the Los Angeles Police Department, the military-industrial complex, and the US war machine. They get rather creative. They bought shopping carts so that homeless people would have a way to store their goods. And then they sued the Los Angeles police for stealing the shopping carts. <laughs> they won. Um, says right on the front of their property, the Los Angeles worker, this is not a, from a supermarket, et cetera, et cetera. The police would steal them. They sued. They got them back with a rather large fine, which they then used to pay for goods for the, for the, for the homeless. When the city of Los Angeles refused to set up portable toilets in the Skid Row district, which is about a six square block area with 5,000 people living on the street every night, um, 
The workers and their allies barricaded the men's restroom on the city, city council floor of City Hall. Uh, when the city council folks learned how, what it feels like not to have a place to pee, they released the portable toilets. The Catholic workers also protest their own church. When the Los Angeles Archdiocese decided to spend $250 million to build a new cathedral, and I will say they did build it, it is gorgeous, and it's called the either the Raj Mahal or the Taj Mahoney after Archbishop <laughs> Roger Mahoney, since retired. The workers and their allies um, occupied the old cathedral bell, cathedral's bell tower, hung a banner down saying, give the money to the poor. Uh, their intellectual leader admits to not having attended church mass since the revelations about pedophilic priests. That's going on almost 20 years. Their Wednesday night house masses, however, often, Wednesday night house masses, which is the ritual I'll be talking about, often start with the phrase, you won't believe what the archbishop did today. Nevertheless, they remain resiliently devout. They consider themselves a faithful remnant following Jesus in a benighted age. As the same leader put it to me in an interview, you Protestants tried leaving the church 500 years ago and that didn't work out too well. We're staying. The hierarchy can leave if it wants. We're the real Catholics. Now, this raised a major question for me during my 13 years of more Catholic worker pictures, 13 years of on-again, off-again field work. How do the Catholic workers maintain their dedication in face of almost constant opposition from local officials, the US government, and their own religious leaders? A commitment to social justice only carries one so far. These are some of their actions. This is an anti-death penalty action. Um, this is a, 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 a blocking of the gate of Vandenberg Air Force Base, which is where they test the nuclear missiles and the uh, whole bunch of other stuff they sent out into the, almost every member of the worker commune has spent at least six months in jail for it. Not everyone's led to do that, but the people introduce themselves, particularly men will be introduced by their arrest records. It's an interesting hidden pattern as well. At any rate, how have they kept going for nearly 50 years? A post on their website articulates part of the answer, and that's a relatively new post. It reads, we have learned over the years to strike a balance between service and prayer, between reflection and action. While we still definitely err on the side of activism and resistance, we have tried to build a structure that forces us to take time for regular prayer, reflection, Bible study, and dialogue. As Thomas Merton once wrote, he who attempts to act and do things for others or for the world without deepening his own self-understanding, freedom, integrity, and a capacity to love will not have anything to give others. Fine words. And as far as I can tell, they match what the workers told me about their practices. My observations, however, told me that more than this was going on. People don't live by thoughts alone. Alongside prayer, reflection, Bible study, and dialogue, all of which can be individual and inward, 
the workers practiced a group ritual life that seemed to me to restore their emotional balance and their sense of community. Each Wednesday evening, the worker community and their friends assemble in the, the double living room of their mansion and put out uh, for a mass. They set up chairs, use, it, use a table for an altar, and put out home-baked bread and a flagon of wine for the ceremony. They might have a priest present, especially if one had been arrested with them that morning at their weekly protest against America's many wars. If not, a community member would lead the service. That service would begin so informally you could hardly tell when it started. People would be sharing news about what the politicians had done and what the archbishop had done and so on and so on. And then at some point, would say, someone would say, well, we probably ought to get started and do a, a reading, sometimes scripture, usually scripture, but sometimes other things and quite creative. Then there would be a homily never longer than two minutes. <laughs> and the community would sit in, I guess, what passes to for, for Catholics, to si for passive for silence to Catholics. That is, they'd have a 30 seconds of silence. And then people would add to the homily. And that would go on for 20 minutes or half an hour. Um, this was usually social commentary, reflections on the scripture, connection with the scripture or the reading to whatever was going wrong with the world. And there would have, we would morph into personal prayer requests, prayers for our friends in the streets, prayers for all those in prison, and prayers for specific prisoners of consciousness, and always for the softening of national and church leaders' hearts. Now, no, this, this got pretty dark. If, you, if you're prone to depression, you might not want to be in the room at this point. The statements, it was no means hopeless, but they, the statements, the tone, reinforced the workers' sense of being a remnant, faithful remnant in an extremely dark world. And that world has lost touch with God's will. Then came the passing of the peace. And if you've been to a typical Catholic service, um, the one I started going to when I was teaching at a Catholic school, you get a little short hug to the person next to you and say, peace be with you. The one I went and when I started going to uh, working at Redlands, they stand about like so, and it's, uh, there's a range of behavior. This one, the entire operation stops for 10 to 15 minutes so that everybody in the room can go and hug everybody else. And we're talking full body hugs. Peace be with you, looking straight in your eyes. It's not symbolic. You are recreating the experience of community and connection in the middle of the service. The celebrant would leave the head table and join in with everyone else. It did more than symbolize the community. It helped to create it. It reminded people viscerally of their connection to one another and how important that connection was in their lives. Sooner or later it ends, people sit down, they begin the Eucharist, they pass the bread around, people break off their own pieces, they pass the cup around, people take their own drinks, uh, usually a song. And then a member Someone goes into the kitchen and brings out a huge pot of soup and sets it on the table that's become the altar. And everyone there raises their hand in a blessing, and someone, never the celebrant, intones the words, 
that put that turned the soup into the body of Christ. And then everyone rearranges the chairs, has potluck supper, including the soup and whatever other people have brought. And then they, seven or eight of them, climb into the oldest van I've ever seen. Uh, I wonder it would make it down to, 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 to Skid Row sometimes with the soup. And they go to the hippie kitchen, which is this, their soup kitchen. They'd pick up some more soup. They'd pick up bread. They'd pick up hot sauce. They'd pick up water. And they'd take it out on the streets and serve it to the people living on the streets. Uh, I've elsewhere described this as a symbolic double mass. First in-house mass creates, recreates the work of community and turns it into symbolic priests. Uh, the second street mass distributes God's love to the street people. It's not charity. Anybody can walk through that soup line. I've served soup to police officers and drug dealers, to crackheads and people down on their luck, and to a lot of people that really want to talk about basketball. So I had to learn how to do that. The workers say that God accepts all of them. Experiencing this as ritual rather than as merely idea reestablishes the emotional order that makes long-term social activism possible. And in my write-up of this in a couple of places, I describe that emotional co uh, uh, coaster that the experience, on which the experience leads them. That's the hidden social pattern. It's unmarked by the workers, but it is not unnoticed by them. Ritual done seriously picks you up in one place and carries you to another, reframing your emotions and restoring your sense of community. I got that insight from Navajo ceremonialism, if you're happening to wonder what my theoretical background is for that. But it fits the Catholic worker ritual rather well. And I won't go further into that here. Instead, I wish to explore the third question I asked at the beginning of the lecture. What is reflexivity, and why is it important for the ethnographic process? Reflexivity is the process by which ethnographers recognize the ways that our own intellectual and social locations shape what we can understand about the religious scenes we are investigating. I remarked earlier that we all have intellectual, social, and theological blinders, and that reflexivity is the process of becoming aware of those blinders. The camera is a perfect metaphor for doing ethnography. A camera consists of a box, a light-gathering medium, and a hole or lens. Light falls on the subject. It's reflected through the hole uh, through which it enters the box, and then it falls on a sensor or film or glass plate, or if you're really into old technology, treated asphalt. Um, that's where the first cameras came from. The sensor records exactly what that hole is aimed at, although it presents it upside down. Its view is absolutely objective. It shows exactly what is there, but it does not show what's behind the box, above it, below it, to either side, nor does it show why you pointed the box in that direction in the first place. Ethnography works like this, too. Like a photographer, the ethnographer always has a place to stand. Part of this is our social location. I can't help 
being an older, educated, white male American. And I can't help how that shapes what I, how I see. What's less obvious is that I grew up on the edge of an African-American neighborhood and came of political age in the midst of the 1960s German, French, Mexican, and US student movements and have since had to confront a world full of wars, assassinations, invasions, and social injustices, many of them caused by my own country's government. All of that shapes my outlook. Somebody with a different biography would likely see different things than I do. Like cameras, however, our standpoints do us show us real things about the world. <laughs> Reflexivity is the process of being aware of your standpoints and thus of what you can and you can't see. The more you know about where you stand, the better chance you have of realizing the limits of your own view. Realizing the strengths, too, by the way, as standpoints give us insights that without, as well as hindering us. As we reflect on our own formation, we can, within limits, correct for some of these distortions. Now, three points. Standpoint is not bias, it's the human condition. None of us can see the whole world simultaneously. None of us has a God's eye view of the social scenes about which we want to learn. Second, because reality is more complex than any st single standpoint can comprehend, we ideally need to work in teams. Multiple provision, uh, vision produces better knowledge. As Joey Sprague, who's the best epistemologist I know in the social sciences, said, pointed out, we can communicate across our standpoints. We can help each other see things that we can't. And that will increase our collective understanding. Third, and this is the spot where the camera metaphor breaks down. Standpoints are not just physical, not just biographical. They are also intellectual and theological. It is not just my maleness or whiteness that prevents me seeing certain aspects of social life. It is also the fact that I was trained by in sociology of religion by scholars who held a distinctly Protestant Christian model of religion. Sociology's default view still portrays religions as largely matters of belief embodied in formal organizations that give people both moral principles and a sense of belonging go to any one of the conference, major conferences of sociology and religion in this country, and that's the default view you'll see still. It's not the only thing, but that's the default view you'll see. Add in early sociology's claim that religion was becoming increasingly irrelevant to modern societies, and you get a sense of what I've struggled with intellectually my entire life. We are each brought up in a conceptual milieu that takes certain ideas for, for granted. Had we been raised in a different milieu, we would make other presumptions. And that's why I wrote this book, Alternative Sociologies of Religion, to imagine what it would look like being somewhere else. A sociology of religion founded on Confucian principles, I concluded, when looking at American congregational religion would emphasize religion's roles, would emphasize women's roles, because it is women who maintain the sacred ties that hold the congregation together. And that's just an empirical fact. They do the kitchen ministry. 
They're the ones that visit the sick. They're the ones that feed the pastor. You could get rid of the pastor and you'd still have a congregation. Get rid of the women, you wouldn't have a congregation anymore. Um, Um, a sociology based on the work of the 14th century Arab historian Ibn Khaldun would analyze the role that religion and ethnicity play in generating centripetal or center-focused social solidarity. It would be much more likely to understand ethno-religious conflict than does a sociology that separates these disciplines. And my chapter on applying that analysis applies Khaldunian analysis to the miracles at Medjugorje which happened in the same location as an ethnic war 10 years later. Finally, a Navajo sociology would treat ritual as experiences unfolding in time. Like music, they are polythetic. You can't capture them all at once. Like music, if you want to see what they do, you have to experience them again. Uh, such rituals are not principally symbolic. Uh, as much sociology and anthropology had claimed. Instead, they shape participants' emotions and sense of connection by shaping their attention as much as they shape ideas. Navajo ideas helped me understand Catholic work, worker masses in a way that nothing else did. And yet, I need to apply a bit of retrospective reflexivity to my Catholic worker analysis. I'm Quaker, not Catholic. Unlike Protestantism, both Quakers and Catholics are incarnational, and both have decidedly mystical components. Catholics are much more talkative and have overt ritual. Quakers notoriously sit in silence, waiting on the inspiration of the Spirit. But I've discovered that I am more attuned than most, or most scholars, to, things, to sensing things that are happening beyond words. I don't just rely on my senses. I check them out, but I can see them often. My own experiences in silent meetings certainly primed me to sense the subtle patterns that I found in Catholic worker ritual. I don't think I imagined those patterns. My field work did last for 13 years, and I've interviewed scores of locals and visitors about how the masses affect them. I spent my entire last year of field work trying to make sure I'd gotten the story right because the ritual had subtly changed and the emotional tenor was different. It took me a while to figure out what had been going on. What I am saying is that my own sensitivity to religious experience led me to emphasize the experiential aspect of Catholic worker life. So did my own personal style of activism and my personal preference for small, anti-authoritarian and somewhat disorganized religions. Um, I, furthermore, I cannot imagine living a life of voluntary poverty and suffering multiple arrests in the call of just, cause of justice. I admire it, but it's not my calling. It makes sense to me then, given that reflexive background, that I would be cons have raised the question, what makes it possible for these people to do this. Made sense to me that I would wonder what beyond prayer, reflection, Bible study, and dialogue sustained the worker's dedication. My camera was pointed that way. 
it did not lead me to insights about other aspects of Catholic worker life. That's the reflexive part. Now, one final turn. I said at the beginning of this talk that my GTU training did not prepare me to study empirical religions. I also said that I've come to realize the connection between the theologians that I read there, such as H. Richard Niebuhr, and the habits of mind that make reflective ethnography possible. Somewhere in the responsible self, Niebuhr writes about why he is a Christian. He does not attribute it to anything he believes, nor to his loyalty to any human institution. He says, in effect, that he simply sees the world through Christian eyes. Where there is sin, he sees redemption also. Where life grows dark, there too he sees righteousness shine. When it seems that God has abandoned us, he has learned that this is not the end of the story. Christianity for him reflects his experience of the world. This experience gives him insights, but it also limits what he can see, and he's very clear about that. He assumes that other religious paths both help and hinder people's seeing other things. As ethnographers, we do something similar. It's our task to identify our root experiences of the world and to identify what they have taught us. As we then engage with others, we need to recognize that those others' root experiences may be different from ours. To understand those experiences, to understand those others, and to convey their worlds without imposing our own, we need to recognize our own cultural baggage. We must be willing to be vulnerable and to set our, aside our own intellectual and theological presumptions. As one of the speakers said this morning, we have to be willing to go into the field and abandon everything that we took into the field with us because we will find something else than we, saw, than we, had in, than we expected. Only then can we understand other people's worlds and see the hidden, hidden patterns that shape them. Only then can we do ethnography well. Thank you. Okay, so uh, in view of time, I would like to invite uh, Dr. Corey Williams from uh, Leiden University in the Netherlands to give some kind of uh, response reflexively. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, it's really good to be with you all today. I'm just kind of getting off the plane here, uh, so sorry I missed some of the presentations this morning. I want to say thanks first to Afe, uh, our moderator, for inviting me here today to give this response, and to Jim for providing the keynote, which was intriguing, I think uh, full of broad conceptual and methodological insights, as well as rich case illustrations from your own work and also from other work that you see as valuable. I really do see it as a perfect primer uh, for the coming days' conversations and debates which is important because that's what a keynote is supposed to be about, right? It should get you thinking, right? So as you, as you hear other papers at this, this conference in the next few days, coming back to some of these ideas I think is, is really important. But first, a, a brief personal anecdote. I first met Jim at a conference in Abuja, Nigeria, back in 2012 under some fairly precarious circumstances. It was in the days after uh, Boko Haram 
had attacked uh, a number of, of, well, buildings, the UN building in, in Abuja, uh, uh, a bus depot as well. Uh, and we were in Abuja, actually, at a conference on religion, conflict, violence, tolerance. Uh, I remember taking that jumbo jet, uh, I, I was still in Edinburgh at the time, from, yeah, and, and, and there only being around a dozen people on the plane because no one was sort of traveling. But Jim was there. <laughs> and he had never been to Nigeria, and that, that immediately in, impressed me. Uh, it proves I'm not very smart. <laughs> And office, my friend. <laughs> yeah, and he came for it. That's right. And that's, so there was some loyalty there as well. I also learned uh, quickly two other things uh, about Jim. First, I learned that he could dance. Uh, I'm not sure if he remembers this, but this was demonstrated in part by his, his, his volunteering to get up and dance with this dance troupe that the organizers of this conference had put together to kick off this, this, this conference, the, the pictures and videos of which I will not share with you today for Jim's sake. <laughs> But second, and, and more seriously, I learned that Jim was the real deal. As a PhD student at the time, this meant not only that he was passionate and academically rigorous, but that he also valued teaching and mentoring students, and he took it very seriously. Now, this was exemplified in part by Jim, and actually his, his brother Paul was there as well, their willingness to travel with me after the conference to my field site in Ogbomosho, Nigeria, uh, further down in the south, and to provide lectures and mentorship to some of the students at the Baptist Seminary, which was hosting me at the time. So I, I share those things with you to say that, uh, yeah, this is, this is not just something that, that, you know, the things that you're hearing about, this is not just something on the side. This, this really, uh, this, this reflexive approach to life, I, I, see, it, I see it being lived in, in the fullness uh, with Jim. In, in my response, though, formally, I'd like to focus on four points. Point one is on balancing ethnography's concerns. Jim has reminded us that ethnography's value is in providing an alternative, comparative lens to elite institutional knowledge, text, and theological ideals. It works particularly well as a tool to confront static, essentialized notions of social life. Jim argued that ethnography, when used properly, is concerned with explaining social scenes as locals understand them, their cultural worldviews and conceptual universes. And this was followed up by a second concern, seeking out hidden social patterns, which was skillfully illustrated with the example of the Church of World Messianity. But to take this conversation a bit further, a question for Jim might be, how does the ethnographer balance these two concerns, the imic and the etic? The spectrum of valuing and utilizing informants' perspectives while simultaneously gaining privileged insight into hidden social patterns, patterns that informants may very well disagree with on what they may view as factual or perhaps important ideological grounds. How should these two concerns that you've laid out for us be balanced in our scholarly work so that we keep alive the dynamic multivocal lived experiences we discover in the field, yet often seem to be outweighed by the scholar's special insight, an etic insight that informants can't or don't have access to because of their own intellectual, social, and theological blinders. This raises bigger questions about the power dynamics involved in knowledge production. The second point is on reflexivity. 
Now, certainly part of the answer to my previous question, of course, is to use reflexivity. As Jim has argued, we can use reflexivity to become aware of our blinders, which helps us better understand the social scenes we are investigating. And practically speaking, this ideally occurs not only individually, but also by working in teams and with a concerted effort to expand one's conceptual milieus, the latter of which is illustrated with Jim's recent book, Alternatives or Alternative Sociologies of Religion. Such practices, Jim argues, can help us realize the limits of our point of view and even correct for some of its distortions. But such an argument makes me think about the philosophical assumptions, ontologically and epistemologically in particular, which situates such an understanding of how knowledge is produced and improved. As Thomas Tweed has argued elsewhere, actually in a book that Jim has edited on personal knowledge and, and beyond, which is an excellent text on ethnography, but Tweed argues this, ethnography introduces as many epistemological and moral problems as it solves. So in your experience, Jim, is seeking earnestly to be aware in groups, individually, the best that we can do? Does reflexive practice really offer anything to hold on to? Or are we kidding ourselves into thinking it offers a viable enough pathway out of distortion? As my students often opine in my anthropological fieldwork class, something like Dr. Williams, in the face of such ambiguity and ambivalence, is, is reflexivity our only comfort? <laughs> Point three on scholarship and activism. This paper made me wonder, even though this isn't directly what you've talked about, it made me wonder about the relationship between scholarship and activism. A conversation that goes beyond ethnographical work, but which is important given the close proximity and long-term engagement intrinsic to this sort of research approach. Does ethnography's concern for seeking out hidden social patterns imply at least to some extent, activism on the part of the researcher, of not standing on the sidelines. Does this in turn limit the topics that ethnographers should work on? And do ethnographers, for instance, if joining the Catholic workers and barricading restrooms, do this as a participant observer or an activist or both or somewhere between or across? And how would you see such entanglements in the field kept in balance? And the final point is on identity research. Now, this was a minor point in, in Jim's lecture, but I thought it was interesting to bring up. I, I, I was wondering why Jim thinks that ethnography is not a particularly good method for exploring identities. He informed us that this is best left up to social surveys. But I wonder, doesn't ethnography offer a helpful comparative angle, especially for following up on complicated identities that don't necessarily fit well into survey categories, for exploring the quality of identities, the how and why behind our informants' survey selections? Now, while interviews also offer a complement, I've also found that the multi-methodical approach of combining ethnography social surveys and interviews to be particularly helpful for getting at a, what a number of scholars would call multiple soundings, another metaphor for trying to triangulate the, the phenomena under study. 
And as a cheeky bit of uh, shameless self-promotion, I, I think that the latest edition of Studies in World Christianity does this and offers some examples of, of how this can be done, uh, which, is, which is on, off a, and I have edited, and it's on Christianity and multiple identities. Ethnography is not the only thing, but it's at least one of the things that come into play when looking at identity. So I don't know if we have time today to hear about this, but it's just something I was thinking is in, in your paper. Okay, so thanks once again to, to Jim for sharing your thoughts with us this evening, and I look forward to how this sparks our conversation throughout the weekend. Okay.